when I lose my sense of humor, I know it's time to do a self-check. Welcome to the Joyful Purpose Podcast. I'm your host, Kathy McCabe, a lawyer turned life coach. This show is about finding, living, and working with more joy and purpose, no matter what challenges you may be facing. In every episode, we're going to be sharing easy-to-use tips or just great inspiration to help you live your best life right now. My thinking used to be, I'll be happy when this happens or that happens. And I also used to think that finding purpose in my life was just really stressful and heavy and overwhelming. But the thing was, when I just started following what lit me up, what happened was I got a lot more joy in my life and I found meaning. And research shows that having joy and meaning in our lives helps with our health, wellness, and longevity. Thank you so much for listening. And together, when we create fun lives with meaning, it helps us, it inspires others, and it makes our world better. Hi, it's Kathy McCabe of the Joyful Purpose Podcast. I'm so excited for you to hear my conversation with the amazing Paula Meyer-Bessler. Paula's had an amazing career in the law doing many different things as a successful litigator, a partner, um, she's worked in policy, she's worked for a hospital, and now she has started her own organization called On Behalf Of for Victims of Sexual Abuse and Violence. It's so cool, and Paula has so much wisdom and insight to offer. She's also an amazing mom of four kids, and she was the school board president, and she's done lots of volunteer work along the way. And again, can't wait for you to hear our conversation Before we dive into the conversation, though, I just want to ask if you like the podcast and you've enjoyed it, if you would take a few minutes to take time to review the podcast and share it with a friend. I would so appreciate it. All right. Thanks so much. And let's dive into the conversation with Paula. Hello, Paula Meyer-Bessler. I am so excited for you to be on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here and to talk to you. Oh, so Paula is an amazing human, amazing lawyer, and she's doing amazing work. And she's one of my closest friends. So full disclosure, (laughs) I'm honored that she's one of my closest friends, but she has so much to share with us. And I'll just start at the top. Tell me, Paula, how and why you decided to be a lawyer and a little bit about your background. You know this since we are good friends, and I'm glad you did that full disclosure. Since I was a little girl, I just felt this calling to equity, justice, fairness, and I wanted to be a trial lawyer. I wanted to be a voice for people whose voices had been temporarily silenced. So even in my law school application, I wrote about survivors of sexual violence. As much as a lay person can be called to do something, I was called to do this. Nobody had been a lawyer in my family. My parents were like, what? You want to be a lawyer? It was just something that I almost say bigger than me that was just placed within me, whether that's God, the universe, fate, just something I felt compelled since I was a little girl. Interesting. And that compelling work around sexual abuse advocacy, was that always when you were young or did that start later for you? It was more later. I think I just really, my first inklings were justice, including diversity and equity, which was not 
and, you know, regarding racism, sexism, all of those things that were not prevalent or at the forefront when we were little girls, just something that always called to me. I went through, you know, I went through law school, I talked about sexual violence, but then I really needed to get the skills. I really want to be a trial lawyer and I got offered to work pretzel and Stauffer, had great mentors, did medical defense work for a long time, really learned those skills, did the whole partnership track, made it in five years, all of that. But I started the pro bono at Pretzel and really worked, did the Battered Women's, the Chicago Bar Association's Battered Women program and just always was called to, especially women. We know victims of sexual and violent assault can be men. I've had many male clients, but called to help them in times of need and use what my skills and tools to help in what way I could. Eventually, I moved on to you know, being managing partner of a, law, a Chicago office of a law firm. I had, I ended up at the corner office. You know this, Kathy, you've done this too. You know, the corner office, the windows, floor to ceiling, a lot of money, great people, fantastic ethical clients. And one night I called my husband. I said, I think my soul is dying. I, I think I'm meant to do something else. And mm-hmm. I just pursued that. And I, we can get more into that, but I've done a lot of things over the course of my career because of that feeling, but I would say the number one thing and reflecting on all this in preparation for today was following my family too, because at the time we got married, we had four kids, a dog, (laughs) and I used to say I'd go semester by semester, like where are my kids at now? What am I capable of? And how do I make an impact? And in many ways, I was very successful at that. And in many ways I had trials and tribulations and doubts and time away from my family. Make no mistake, the success any professional woman has is time away from her family multiple times. And being open with that, recognizing it, especially in retrospect, my adult kids and I have great conversations about that. So it's just been a journey, but I'm so grateful for it. And it's been a diverse journey. What's interesting is my mentor, my greatest trial partner, and and now dear friend, when I started this, he's one of my biggest supporters. He said, you know, it's so funny. How many jobs have you gone or careers have you had? He said, I still have the same job, same key card I've had for 42 years at the office. And I said, I, I do think in many ways, that's the gift that men have had in their careers, that women often switch careers because of their family. And I'm not saying this always happens. I'm not saying anything's unfair. I'm just saying for he and I, I think that was true. Mm-hmm. You've always managed to not only do these different career paths, you've also managed to be very successful at them. I mean, you worked at a hospital for a long time doing, you know, amazing work there as well. What do you believe has contributed to your success in different venues? Genuine interest in other people. I'm fascinated by people. I always have been. When you're asked questions and people have to answer you, unlike your family. And so my genuine interest in people, my authenticity for justice and kindness and caring, I have many faults, many insecurities. I think something that I feel very steadfast in that I've had from day one is just an innate sense of fairness and caring for other people. I think that's been passed down to me from generations of strong women, my grandmother, my mother, my sister, very strong, strong women. And that authenticity, and then also knowing when to leave, which was very initially very tough, but knowing when I couldn't do it all. 
Mm. Like that famous quote Ruth, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, you can't have it all at once. And I had a senior partner, woman partner who back in, you know, when I first started, that was not a great life. Who had, she had four children. And she said to me, she kind of did a variation of that quote. She said, you can have it all. You just don't have to have it all at the same time. And that was cathartic for me. That opened my life. Like I thought, okay, this semester, we have this sports, we have this going on with that. I can teach. I was an adjunct law professor at Loyola Chicago School of Law for 10 years. Um, I'd figure out when I could teach. I would figure out how many hours I could work. I would figure out what I wanted to do for social services. Like, you know, I ran the children's ministries at our church for five years, and that was something I could do with my children. Running for the school board and being president during COVID, that's another whole conversation. So there's a myriad of factors, but I would, again, just to summarize, it would be my innate calling to what I had to do, knowing when to change, and my my interest in people and strong passion for justice and representing people's voices. I love it. And also, uh, you're one of the most empathetic human beings on the planet. Oh, um, well, I am, which is can be a detriment. I love it. It's such a joy. I feel people, but it batters your soul sometimes. I can feel certain people that I love rolling their eyes at that, but it's in a loving, humorous way, but it can batter your soul. And I, and to manage that is really important in a career, especially in what you and I are doing, you know, representing people or helping people. It's, you have to have boundaries. But one thing I have found for success for me, especially now, as I step into my own true core of who I am right now is empathetic leadership and I was so impressed, the outgoing New Zealand Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, she was talking about this and she said, you know, and I will never be able to be as articulate as her words, but she was saying, I've been criticized because, or even told I was weak because I have compassion. And she said, I read, I absolutely reject that. I think you absolutely can be compassionate, empathetic, and a strong leader. And I re- that really resonated with me. So yeah, you have well, to manage I, it, but you also have to embrace it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, when I, I say being authentic, you know, a lot of times when I started out in practice, and I don't know if you did this, but in trial, I was trying to emulate these senior partners, male styles that I work with in the courtroom. That was not me at all. I'm an empathetic person. I could, I connect with people. I'm a great mediator, reconciler. And once I embraced my own style, I was much more successful. And I feel that's what I'm doing now at 100%. I love it. Yes, I could not agree with you more in terms of any success I had in my legal career and in the courtroom is just the more I could be myself and the way I would do it. It just worked so much better and trying to be, you know, like that saying says, everyone's taken, you might as well be yourself. I think for women, especially, I think there's an expectation that we have to do it a man's way because that's many of our models. And I love how you are going against that as well as many women leaders, because there is a different way to lead. And it's interesting. And I come across, it's just been a journey with that. And it's something I've been very much more cognizant of 
recently. And it just, I really embrace that. And that's a vision I have for my organization, leading with kindness, compassion, being team members. And that's not to say that any place that does it differently is not successful or not the right place, but it's not the right fit for me. And, you know, along this journey and discovering all this, what's been so key and instrumental is the network I have from my family to friends like you and this, this sisterhood of friends I had. I mean, it truly is life altering. My husband, number one, has his own great successful career, always supportive of me, including now. My grandmother, my mother and my mother-in-law watched my kids on Tuesdays forever and Thursdays, respectively, the whole time I was working. My sister who watched my oldest and her goddaughter when I was first working, I never had to work childcare. And then all these women I worked with that we were so bonded. It was such a unique time to become a professional in the, you know, nineties to become a woman lawyer. And, and then these just lifelong friends that I've had since childhood, college. I mean, I remember meeting you and you and I sitting surrounded by this college party atmosphere and just someone who thought like me and felt like me wanted to make a difference like me. I just thought you were a beautiful soul from day one. You've been a soul sister from the day I met you. Oh, right back at you. Community of women who support each other, I think also can change the world personally. (laughs) I do too. Yeah, I do too. It's, uh, it's so powerful when you can create community like that. And it's not everywhere and not every woman have that. I mean, more and more do. I would say it's more the norm, but not everyone has that same sense of wanting that kind of community. Would, would you agree with that? It is. And, you know, I think I used to struggle with that, especially my people-pleasing tendencies. I mean, there's a multitude of reasons. I was a perfectionist and people pleaser. I've really just explored this in my journaling and my thoughts lately about, well, that's not for everyone, right? And stepping away from people pleasing, trying to put all your energy into reading whoever you're working for or with and adapt yourself to that, stepping away from that to the other end of the continuum of starting your own organization with your own values, your own mindset, your own sense of self, you have to recognize that first of all, not everyone's going to like your authentic self. When you're people pleaser, adapter, you can pretty much put a lot of energy towards that goal of everyone liking you and still not succeed. It's, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. And you know what? I feel people say, how do you have so much energy now? And I said, because I'm putting all that energy into my mission. I mean, that's another thing I've been at success. I just focus on the work. I had another mentor, the president of Lutheran General Hospital, who said just... The true north is our patience. The true north is the mission. And that was another kernel that I've carried with me. But shifting to that other end of not everyone thinks this way. This is not everyone. And it's okay if this person's not an organizational fit with your vision or you're not an organizational fit with somebody else's culture or environment. It's the fact that you have discernment to figure that out. Yeah. And that you follow what is right for you and for your mission. And, or that you have, I think it's critical to have crucial conversations, transparency, respect, civility, professionalism in all conversations and to be open about that. Yeah. I think also. And right? that's something I really utilized is a school board member, especially president during three years of COVID. And I think we saw 
so many other behaviors from so many different viewpoints in the team there, like our board never always agreed, but we, we maintain our civility respect mm-hmm. and for the public and for all opinions. And yeah, again, I think it, it boils down to human decency and kindness and respect yeah. and then following who you are and not faulting anybody if they are different than you or have yes. different views than you. Well said. I think for me, and it sounds like for you as well, it's just like as much as you can be in your own integrity about whatever you're doing and stick to that, then it's so much easier to ignore when people don't like you or you perceive they don't like you because I am a huge former people pleaser. It still creeps up, (laughs) but me too. That's helped me. <laughs> me as well. Still find where you, it's almost muscle memory, right? You can sense someone doesn't like you and then you're trying harder and you're expending your energy there. And I don't know what that is. I do think it's more pervasive in women than men. I also think, don't you just, I mean, you worked in a male dominated culture for many years. I mean, the laws, and of course- yes. Women have been coming out equally from law school since the 80s, but as you go up the ranks, it's more male. The statistics show that. Mm-hmm. And in litigation, it's more male. <laughs> and there's wonderful male lawyers. This is not a criticism against, against all male no, lawyers, but there is a culture that you feel like, just my perspective, you have to like oh my gosh, they have to like you or you have to get along. You can't be too bitchy. You can't be, you can't be too this or that. What do you have to say about that? Absolutely. And I think you articulated wonderfully there. It was just such a different landscape when we started. And thankfully it has shifted exponentially, but we can't forget where we've come from, you know, in any movement or how any movement affects another one. We have to be cognizant of all of it, but you can't ever forget our history either. And the landscape when you and I graduated law school, my law school class at Loyola was the first 50% women class, 80, and I graduated 89. And it was almost especially in litigation. You know, I had four older brothers. I've had, always had great male friends who are fantastic individuals. And it was almost expected that you roll with it, that the, the culture of just a very different culture that wouldn't be accepted now, um, that you roll with it, that you're kind of, you know, have a sense of humor, that you're a good sport, that you, you're a bulldog in the courtroom, but yet you're very polite when negotiating your raise. Um, thanks. And that was one of my examples of, but thankfully, again, a partner and my mentor and dear friend now, like, you know, you have these beacons of people who truly were ahead of their time or true to what the what we're speaking about now at that time. And I'm very grateful for them because there's a lot of great people I worked with. I'll never forget. It's just a funny story. Like just an example. If you want to tell, we won't even say what judge it was. No, don't say the judge. Yeah. <laughs> you were presenting the emotion in the courtroom and you were, can, would you share that story? Cause it's, it's pretty funny. Just when I was an example. Yeah. I was expecting. Yeah, yeah, well, actually, it was in judges' chambers, and it was a huge, huge multi-million dollar medical case, and we were negotiating, and I think there was nine other co-defendant lawyers, and the opposing attorney was a lawyer, and the judge was an older male judge, and 
I was six, seven months pregnant. And I think I was arguing some motion and the judge said, you look fantastic. You, you haven't gained any weight anywhere else in your body. Stand up, turn around. How much weight have you gained? I was so mortified. This is in the nineties and didn't say a word, played along, did what I had to do. And I left and, you know, this was unheard of back then. Um, but another one of the co-defense counsel came up to me and said, I think you should do something about that. And I said, that's just career suicide. Back then you could never, you just had to roll with it. And when I think back on that now, I'm so grateful for my three daughters who are all professionals now that at least that's not accepted. It's just, it's funny in retrospect, but in the moment it's, you know, when I look at it, it's like how horrifying, but that was pretty much every day, right? I mean, you, <laughs> oh, I have a lot of very, very fun. common. I have a lot of good stories too, but that's not what we're going to focus on, but it, but just to give people the idea of the different challenges you've had through your, you know, very successful career. And that was just one of them. Well, and and to my firm's credit, because I do don't want to end on a negative, um, you know, like I said, Brian, my partner I worked for and all of that, like, I mean, he really highlighted and recognized, and even I think shared this when I made partner that the challenges and how I navigated them, you know, mm-hmm. professionally. And mm-hmm. so there's many people who work to make it an even better place. You know, we all evolve. So it's always a journey. It's always a journey. So tell us about your current agency that you just started and Tell us specific examples of who you help. Yeah. And just share more about that because it's very exciting and it's very powerful work. Sure. So I have been up until recently, I've been representing directly uh, survivors of sexual violence and really getting back into the core of the legalities of that. And, but I had in previous, I'd worked in anti-sex trafficking organization, really been involved in policy. And when I was at Advocate Healthcare, I did some policy as well, worked with our government relations people in a relationship capacity. And I think it's important, it's important to know the law and how it affects individual survivors, but it's also to make an impact at a at a higher level, more globally, and to prevent additional people from becoming victims there has to be a policy approach. So how are you changing laws? How are you changing how laws are being interpreted? How are you expanding laws for survivors so that, for instance, someone can take time off without delay to their career to go to court, go to therapy, not taking off partnership track, but there's a law in the state of Illinois, VESA, the Victims Economic Safety and Security Act, that says if there's a survivor of sexual assault, and now it's been expanded to any violence, that by law it can be disclosed that people can take time off either in increments or exponentially, and it cannot affect their confidential, cannot affect their work trajectory, all of that. So that passion and that will to take people's voices to to our legislative chambers and to entities to really advocate for changes is what compelled me to do this. I love it. Um, and it's just a more macro level. And you want me to talk about who I'm working with or? I just getting back to that VESPA law, you were helpful in helping it pass. Is that right? No, that had passed before there was an ESSEL 
ensuring student success law that our policy manager, who's not a director there, a fantastic individual, after 13 years had gotten that passed, really mm. highlighting the exponentially proportionately different impact of young women of color, brown and black women. And it's really essentially a law that allows for survivors in the high school setting to get the same protections as say like VESA or Title IX in, in work environments or colleges if they've been assaulted or if they have some violence mm. and how they get resources. Mm. And I was just honored to be a part because I had been on a school board for so many years and because of you know, anytime you change anything that affects public schools, I was, you know, involved in that somewhat. And I had the relationships from my, from being an advocate. So I had the opportunity. We had physically moved just and um, had the opportunity to work with Aaron of Aaron's Law, of which Aaron, that's the personal body safety that is mandatory requirement for public schools to teach age-appropriate personal body safety from pre-k through 12th grade she passed first passed it in white 10 years ago she has since passed it in 38 states we have 12 states to go uh, we're focusing on wisconsin and florida she's an incredible survivor who's not i wouldn't even that wouldn't be the first definition i have of her she's a mother of four as well she has instrumentally done so much work around this. All prevention programs that anyone has, even in these 12 states that haven't passed it officially yet, are all based really on her premise. She talks about at great length how she was taught stranger danger, shooter drills, tornado drills. Wasn't taught, told about how it might be someone she knows. And there's story after story of once people students have this age-appropriate training. It's And it's not sex education training, it's personal body safety. It's very age-appropriate. Just what's okay, what's a secret that you can, when is it okay for someone to tell you this is a secret, when is it not, you know, mm. something like that. And she she has changed the world and she's at the point now, she's at the, at the final stretch. She wants to take her nonprofit to the next level. She asked me to work with her and I said, you know, I would love to work with you. She was actually a client of mine at my previous organization for some things related to her story. Um, and we just connected and I said, I would love to do so, but I would love to start my own organization just because I have a vision for this. I have a vision for um, what I'm doing. So she's, that's really my main focus now, but I also trained entity I'm working with is the Illinois Coalition Against Sexual Assault. And I've done trainings for their advocates and they're, they're the entity that certifies all the rape crisis centers in the state of Illinois. They have all these advocates that are not lawyers that are like go through 40 hour trainings and they work in the emergency rooms or the, they're the first person to go to court with the survivor, but they're just incredible individuals that are critical for the health and survival and successful journey for justice for a survivor. And so I do trainings for them on the overall law and also how the system works, anything that would help optimize their impact and their mm -hmm. advocacy as well as their own healthy journey yes. because they need to be healthy. And then we're also working, every state has this, a coalition against sexual assault, WICASA, the Wisconsin Coalition Against Sexual Assault is working with us to pass Aaron's law. She came with you to be your client in your new organization, and you're working together to pass this law in the 12 remaining states. Is that right? Yes, I would say we're working side by side. I guess my point is, you're so funny. she wanted you, not someone else. 
She went at Paula Meyer oh. Bessler to help finish this very huge, important uh, legislation. Yes, she said, I want someone I can trust and I feel I can trust you. Trust, of course, but also your skills and the way you work with people, I'm sure, was a huge factor for her as well. Well, I hope so. And I believe so. But yes, you know me. I'm not seeing this is go back to that hesitancy to speak, focus on yourself or tout your own accomplishments. I mean, that's always, I think I've told you this many times, I made a career out of being secondary to someone else, right? To reading what they are, to being a great second, right? And I think that was hesitancy to believe in my own vision and to believe in myself. And thankfully, that's gone away because I have such strong convictions of how to do it with kindness, empathy competency and yeah. purposeful advocacy well many women have taken that role where they're second because what for whatever reason internally they don't believe it or whatever so i mean i think your story and how you're stepping up in your own leadership is so powerful and inspiring to so many and, and there's a time for that right when i was raising my kids you know i was managing partner i was doing all that and I realized I couldn't do it all. And it's okay to say, okay, you know, I'm going to step back. And I, I believe in you, number one person, I would love to support you. So I have more energy and time to be with my family. And like I said, I haven't always done that very, that great. There's great times that sacrificed, especially when I was on trial, as you know, that time away from my family and not being able to be emotionally present because trials are 24 seven consuming, right? Mm -hmm. And so really working on being present, really working on being accountable to myself, being available for people, but not being a doormat, it's a lot of work being a professional woman, right? <laughs> well, I think also it's important that, I mean, you can have a stay-at-home parent who's not present, right? So being present with your Great family. Point. Yes. So being Great present point. with your And family. you know, back in the 90s, there was also that whole, if you would call this, you know, where people are trying to stir up like stay-at-home moms against working moms, kind of that. And I feel like we've moved beyond that. Hopefully have, like, I feel like the greatest gift is we give each other, support each other in whatever choice we make, right? It was my mother who, you know, this fantastic stay-at-home woman, woman of great strength, greater centeredness than I've ever had. And I tried to stay for two months, you know, this Kathy, and you know, for I don't know, or third. And it was my mother who said to me, I think you will be happier and you need to work and it'll, you'll be a mother mother. And it was such a gift from her. She's given me so many gifts, but that gift was life altering. It really was. A thousand percent. And I mean, first of all, being a stay at home mom, and not having anything else and do it happily is one of the hardest job in the world, I think. Yes. People who do it, I'm amazed by it. You know, well, just, people, I would say people who do it happily and do it and are very present with their family and do it really well. It's really, I mean, being a parent is really hard period. That's what I'll say. So, but so Absolutely. many of us need, you know, another outlet and, you know, that's a beautiful advice that your mom gave to you because I truly believe, right? The greatest gift you can give your child is being a happy parent and doing what you need Absolutely. to do. Absolutely. Give us some examples of specific kinds of clients you help 
And I know you do some corporate work as well. So can you just give us some specific examples? In the past or what I'm doing now or both? Uh, either. I know you just started your agency, so it's not, but your sure. intention. Sure. And maybe in the past, like who would come to you and why? For many years, I was a medical defense attorney, doctors, nurses, hospitals, but in my pro bono work and then in this work that I've been super exponentially called to um, survivors of sexual violence, trafficking, sex trafficking victims, okay. worked with them a lot at one of my organizations. Their life, everyone has challenges in their life. People whose challenges led them to a road ended up to a place that horrific in violence and they're trying to get out of it or people who've had a singular incident of mm. violence, either someone off more often than not someone they know, unfortunately, and many of them, if not the majority of them don't come right away. Mm-hmm. It's they try to bury it first. Mm. And then three, four or five years later, they say, this is affecting me and I can't move on. Got it. I can't get married. I can't move on. I just got so you are you helping them in a civil suit? Are you? Yeah, oh yes. So we did criminal and civil. Initially, I was all in civil because I was a civil defense lawyer for so long. And what people criminal there's the criminal process system, and then there's civil, which you know you're not asking for someone to be incarcerated or punished. You're asking for financial or declaratory relief. Like somebody can't like a protective order. Someone can't come around you. Somebody can't, they owe you money because they violated this employment law. So I did brought a lot about justice for people in their day-to-day lives, like in education settings or in employment settings, but also went to police interviews, also went to criminal, really helped them. There's victims' rights representation, which helps them along the way in their journey in a criminal process. But when you're a victim in a criminal proceeding, you are not a party. There's the state and there's the defendant. Thankfully, in the state of Illinois, there's a, a law for the rights of victims. And that's what our entity had did um, and does mm-hmm. is represent victims during that. So taking all that knowledge and really using that voices, their voices and that law and sharing that and educating legislators is the next step of my agency. Awesome. So just for the average listener who may be listening to this and hasn't been impacted by sexual abuse in some way, can you share some Mm -hmm. statistics of why this is such an important issue for women, girls, and men? There's a lot of research around the data and the statistics, and it's changing. And how do we know? Originally, the data came out like one in four women is sexually abused and one in girls, children, um, and one in seven boys. What we can definitively say now, at least one in 10 children experience abuse. So it's is very that, Is that in the United That's, States? In the United States, but worldwide it's, you know, and, and keep in mind this is all grossly underreported, right? And so, and we've had a culture that it's either even buried or we didn't talk about it. Now, thankfully that is changing. We talk about it and it's coming out and you hear it more and more in celebrities or people. It's just very, very common. So we have to change not only our mindset, but what we feel comfortable talking about, but also the work we do to prevent it. We don't, if we can prevent, if one, if a kid can sit through an hour presentation in first grade and realize, hmm, this isn't the right thing. It could save them a lifetime of pain, physical, emotional, and lasting trauma. 
Um, so it is so pervasive and so often the root cause um, of anybody who is groomed into trafficking or groomed into a situation they don't want to be. Most people are looking for love, acceptance, presence, something they didn't have growing up, someone to trust them, to believe in them, to walk alongside them, but not rescue them. They're not rescuing. They're, they're finding they've always had their voice. They've always had it. It might be temporarily silence. It's my honor and privilege to project their voice in those moments they cannot. Right. It moves me to tears, but yes, that's mm. why I do what I do. So I read somewhere, I don't know if the statistic is accurate still, the average age of sexual assault for girls is 14. Is that right? Yes. And that too, that data point has, you know, shifted, but absolutely. And then it's, um, it is very common. Um, and I would say that's the probably most accurate statistic out there. Um, anybody so, so who runs away, if they're abused at home, if they run away, they're approached within the average um, runaway is approached within 48 hours by a trafficker. Yeah. I mean, so this it's, is it's like, insane. and so, right. And then today with the internet, the access to unknown predators is huge, right? So what can parents do to help prevent or be more aware, you know, for their children, I guess. Be very aware of what they're on on their phones. The number one grooming tactics are Instagram, Snapchat, all the, the social media. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful because I don't know how I would have done it. I raised my three daughters, my son, when it wasn't as prevalent because all any uh, child has to do is post, my family doesn't understand me. And that is, they go for the emotional Achilles heel. They go for the child who's feeling not loved or not feeling mainstream because of this barrage of what it's to be popular and attractive in our society, like what they see on social media is just beating them up. And mm. God forbid so, they're, they're being abused at home or they have issues at home. That is a recipe for being groomed. But and, even the kid who says like, my family doesn't understand me, which, you know, could come out of my children any day of the week. <laughs> oh, amen. I, yes. But you're saying any kind of groomer perpetrator is going to look for something like that on social media to potentially connect with this, with this child. 100%. Okay. And what's they really look, important. I can love you. I care about you. I yes. think you're beautiful. And the other thing is, and I'm sure this may be obvious, but I remember talking to a police officer once and she said, people think, parents think that their children are safe because they're at home, but we're allowing the internet in. And I have stacks, this is what she said, I have stacks of reports where there are 50-year-old men posing as 13-year-old girls or 13-year-old boys, you know, of complaints. Every day. That's their whole operation. Their whole, it, every day it is out there that, you know, think about it, you know, this has replaced the drug epidemic in many ways because it's a commodity that can be used over and over. There's great money to be made in trafficking and to exploiting. And I want, I, I want you to give people the sense, because I don't know that people really understand. I know I didn't until I, I talked to you more about it, but to understand 
how big a problem trafficking is in the United States. A lot of times when we think of trafficking, we think of, well, maybe third world countries and maybe they come here, but it's a very big problem right here. Oh, and everyone thinks it's the movie Taken. It's only over in Europe. No, it's expert. It is horrific problem in our United States, right in our own backyard. The corridor from Chicago to Milwaukee, it's one of the highest trafficked areas in the country because it's kind of, there's direct access from O'Hare to kind of a country environment that, and there's hotels along the way, proximity. Florida is one of the highest organizations done exponentially a lot of work to highlight that, to address and give safe homes to the survivors, but it is so prevalent in the United States and people have to realize there's, it's big money. And that's, you know, I don't mean to make it so basic, but that's why there's grooming, there's operations around it. And how do they keep feeding the system of this? How, how do, and tell us, just give us an example of how there is big money in it. Can you give us a specific example? And there's estimations of all different things, but again, you can sell child over and over again. Um, we've had, I worked with survivors who were sold 30 times a day and, you know, they can charge for that. Think about that when you extrapolate it out, the average life, the average time in the life, it's often referred to life as like seven years. Once a child is kind of brought into the system, they can be there seven years. And because they are a child, so impossible to get out of it and then all the psychological i imagine damage oh yeah and they use drugs often to sabotage them there's often there's two kind of traffickers there's a romeo trafficker and then there's the gorilla um there's the romeo who said i will love you i'm it i want to marry you we're going to be together i have somebody i worked with who's incredible that her you know she very young or high school boyfriend let's get married right away and then he just started selling her. And it's a long, I let her tell her story. She does tell it. Um, she has a whole foundation. She's incredible. And then there's the gorilla who just uses violence and fear and, you know, kind of your more traditional, what you think, you know, we used to call them pimps or traffickers now and control them physically. And I worked with another survivor who she finally got to the hospital, um, you know, had all these broken bones and burns. And, you know, we've done a lot of training of with hospital systems because they have a trafficker. That's the only place that they can go in their time in the life. I mean, trafficking victim where they're away from the trafficker in that three minute patient room where they're with the healthcare giver. And the signs are different. The signs are different than domestic abuse. They're different on what they need to look for. Many trafficking victims are, most are tattooed in some way. There's different tattoos in different regions of the U.S. of what means what. Um, So these certain tattoos come up. Wow. I mean, we could do a whole different podcast on this, but it is in our back doors. It is in our backyards. It is online. So as a parent, going back to your original question, you need to know there's controls, there are parental controls on like I said, Instagram and Snapchat are the number one grooming sites that may have shifted recently, but you need to be aware of that. Okay. Thank you. Wow. Such powerful sure. work you're doing I'm... and taking such a leadership in changing this mm-hmm. and also bringing awareness because I, I just don't think it's something that people are aware of how no. prevalent it is. And no. what can the average person do to help this problem. There's so many problems in the world, but this is one 
as well, right? That what can we do to help? Be aware of the statistics, be aware of the vulnerable kids, share the knowledge. I mean, that was a huge thing, like in awareness and understanding it and help change our, what we consider, you know, this is just societal expectations for young women and young men. Number one demand at the Super Bowl trafficking events are, you know, a young boy, seven, eight-year-old boy. So and I remember you uh, telling me this, the statistic that that is the number one place where young boys are trafficked is at the Super Bowl. Yes. How many people yeah, know and that? A lot of people dispute, you know, there and there's great discussions and, you know, you and I are based in facts, right? So there's great discussions. Is that overblown? Is that not? Does that subtract from what's being happening every day? But it, it there is a huge, and the police force in like, for instance, you know, Sarasota, Florida and other parts of Florida, because Florida has the Super Bowl so often, are very in tuned and, and focused on that. Cook County Sheriff Tom Dart goes after the traffickers. He goes after, or, and he goes after the buyers. He right. went to Loyola School, too, and I've known him for years. And he he's realizing that systemically we have to not accept the whole system, right? Yes. We have to address the root causes, but then also anybody who's profit profiting off the system. There's been laws passed now that hotels in the state of Illinois, I was with Representative Laura Murphy and the governor when they signed this, that, you know, if a hotel or a business profits off of it, I mean, a hotel can tell if someone's being trafficked, if someone's stuck in the room and people are in and out um, and they're profiting off of that. Um, So there can be consequences for that. So that's all super important. That's great because now you're starting your own organization. So what has helped you most find your voice? Being fully present with my family. And examining my family dynamics from how I grew up and how I've raised my own kids and where I wish I had been, where I see opportunity for improvement, where I see opportunity to break cycles, to be just fully present. I have these, like I said, I have three daughters in their 20s and my son is in their, uh, still in college in his 20s. And my daughters are these incredible, successful professionals. You know, I'm so proud of them, but I learned from them. Learn from them, and we have these great discussions. Um, so, truly listening to voices of their generation, being present with my family, being present in my everyday life, and cutting out the noise and listening to my authentic selves, trying to cut out the noise, which has always been very tough for me because as a people pleaser or trying to read other people or an empath, trying to read other people's energy distracts me from that. All those, and then da- daily healthy practices, spending time with my dog laughing sense of humor you and I have laughed from day to the day we met I mean that's when I lose my sense of humor I know it's time to do a self-check oh I love it what has helped you quiet other voices in your head what what has helped you quiet silence your inner critic that we all have that's a work in progress right that's a daily exercise sometimes in futility but I would say journaling having accountability with myself and good dear friends like you friends who care that deeper level of introspection and honesty with myself which is sometimes painful I'm a huge believer in therapy and recognizing your own triggers your own sensitivities how it impacts your family how it impacts your work your mission and being accountable to that and how you want to live your life. I mm. mean, I work at it every day. I work at it every day. Some days more successfully than, than others. 
<laughs> I want to make this clear and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but starting your sure. own agency and doing it in your own way is truly, and doing something you're passionate about is really following your joy. You're Not only do you feel this need to do this work, a purpose, but you're also doing it in a joyful way. Could you say more about that? Absolutely. Again, it's because I feel like I'm using my time and talents to make an impact. And that's what I've been called to do. You know, there's that saying, you know, find what you love and what you're good at. And if God's smiling at you, they're the same thing. <laughs> you know, I feel like that's, I'm coming into my true core who I am, rather than being apologetic that I'm hypersensitive or that I'm, or, or describing myself as too much, embracing who I am, that I'm a strong empath, I'm sensitive, I care about people, and I want to, and I'm pretty good at advocating for them and embracing that. And I will tell you, my husband, (laughs) well, thanks. And my husband, I I do have to give a shout out to him because, you know, we've been married 30 years and he's been telling me to do this forever. He said, you don't see the value I see in you. And, And just to have the belief of people that I respect so much like him and you and you know if you have those dear friends who can be honest with you you're a very blessed person and I have that with him you other great friends that I've had you know the sisterhood of friends I've had is incredible what would you tell someone who's at the crossroads at their career they're successful but they're like maybe where they're at they're not being recognized or they just feel like they're ready for something different. What advice or tips would you give to them? I told you, I kind of would go semester by semester and I would say, what's your vision? What's your long game vision, right? What's, what's your long game? What do you want to say eventually? Um, I didn't really have that. It morphed into this, but the fact that I switched several careers made me this well-rounded professional who can be an advocate, right? So if somebody's thinking long-term, I would like to be this, but in this semester or this season of my life, my kids are too busy. We have too much sports. They're on travel this or travel that. What's one thing you can do now that gets you to the long vision? So you mm. have your long-term goals. It's like any strategic planning, right? You have your smart goals, smart, you know, measurable, attainable timeline, all that. You have your long-term goals. And then what's, what's something I can do right now? And the other thing is I share this, I love to mentor people and I do it a lot. What's the bullet point you need on your resume right here, your CV? Like, you know, I always kept my hand in the law. I always did, you know, as an adjunct law professor, I kept my skills sharp in one way or another. So I, what I wanted, the eventual job I did, I'd have the skills and the experience. Mm. So it's really that, what's your long-term goal? Follow your family. It's okay to change. I think you told me that, Kathy. You're like, you know, the thing is you can change. And I was like, oh, that's so cathartic. <laughs> and to know that. Such right? wisdom. Right? <laughs> you know, it's not set in stone and you can change and you can evolve. And again, oh, yeah. Personal. I mean, my favorite, you know, my favorite word in coaching is you can do this and, you know, just the and, or, you know, it's like, you're not stuck ever. It's our thinking no. that keeps us stuck. A huge goal of mine right now is to show work-life balance to, right? I will have never had that. You and I didn't have the luxury of that to make partner back in the 90s. You had to work your mandatory Saturdays. You had to go in. But unfortunately, 
that really matched with my workaholic perfectionist personality, right? So my type A embraced that. It's also a way of avoiding emotion, right? It's avoiding hard things. It's avoiding examining your triggers. Workaholism is the same thing, right? It's like, it's the addiction to avoiding uncomfortable feelings. Yes. And so to really show, like I said, I'm just so proud of our children, our grown children and their professionalism and their hard workers and their consummate professionals. If anything, I worry they work a little too hard. And so I'm really trying to model the work-life balance, which is a daily struggle in being accountable to yourself and to your family. It's not just about me. Just going back to being present, like for women or whoever's listening and like they decide like, oh, I want to be doing this other thing. But right now my heart or my energies need to be here is just honoring that and enjoying it, not just honoring it, enjoying and embracing it. And And I feel I finally have achieved it, you know, and then you know, not 100%, you have relapses, whatever, but, you know, I also feel my most painful moments were those moments where I I couldn't be present, but I, I knew I, that, I was needed at work and I knew I wasn't being present with my kids, but that's part of it, right? You're you're accepting that, knowing it, talking through it with them, acknowledging it. You're not going to be perfect. It's not, it's a linear journey. Well, can I also say like, you know, stop being so hard on yourself. You've been an amazing mother. You are an amazing mother, amazing lawyer. (laughs) This is pretty much the history of Kathy and I speaking to one another, but it's always examining and yeah, You're but it's sweet. true. I love you. Oh, but it's true. It's true. And it's like, stop beating yourself up for, you know, being human. You're trying to do a good job and juggling it all is, is really hard. And, you know, you still did a great job. So, and you know, they really think, turned out, I think we've done a great job. They're great human beings and they're great inside and out. So, and, you know, and I think coming back to your original question of what would I tell somebody, you know, I keep coming back to that core that that woman senior partner told me that variation of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's quote, really, you can have it all. You just don't have to have it all. So life-changing. And I think that if you figure out where you need to be right now for your long-term goals, or if you don't know your long-term goals, to stay steady in your in yourself and to follow your joy, as my friend um, and podcaster, life coach, Kathy McCabe says. <laughs> That's right. But also, you know, I think the bigger message as well, and I've seen this over and over with clients I've worked with and in myself, it's like defining what success is on your own terms. Like, right. It's not traditional or it's not, you know, it's three days a week. You want to do work and, you know, four days a week, you want to, you know, play paddle tennis or you, you know, whatever that is, it's success for you on your own terms. I love that. Yeah. Yes. And of course, not all of us can do that at times. I, I fully understand that some, some people, right. You, you have to have that nine to five or whatever jobs, but it's, I so believe though, that, that you can work towards that ideal success on your own terms. Um, if you start dreaming about it and looking at possibilities. Believing in yourself, which is yes. where I finally am. So I'm super excited to walk so authentically in myself, but be able to help people. I love it. Well, the world Mm -hmm. is a better place because of you, Paula Meyer-Bessler. And and you, Kathy McCabe. Thank uh, you. What would you tell your seven-year-old self? Oh, that's a tough one. You're beautiful. You're fun. You're not alone. And stay true to yourself. Love it. We can all hear that. 
All right. Is there anything else you want to share about your work, life, wisdom you want to share with our listeners before we wrap this up? No, I think we covered it in great detail. And it was just an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you. And please tell everyone, plug away your organization. I'll put it in the show notes as well. I'll share my website's launching soon. There's more to come and I'll just share that with you and we can do that when we post this. So, yes. And also your organization, just so people know, is called On Behalf Of. Correct. And for those who aren't aware, like you'll always step up in court and say, your honor, Paula Meyer-Bessler here on behalf of my client, XYZ. And Mm -hmm. so that is the moment where I truly feel that I have been tapped on the shoulder and called to do. So I I just felt that was the right name for my organization. So beautiful. All right. And you can follow Paula on LinkedIn as well and Facebook. And are you on TikTok? I am not on TikTok. Uh, I have no musical (laughs) talent whatsoever with my children, but uh, Instagram too. So, but LinkedIn mainly professionally on LinkedIn. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, all right. Thank you so much, Kathy. So great thank to you connect all. with you. All right. Thank you all for who listened. Have a great day. What a great conversation with Paula Meyer Bessler. Here are a few of my takeaways with our talk. I'd love to hear your takeaways. You can DM me on social media, but I'd love to hear what you think and what you got out of this conversation. First, Paula mantra of everything has a season is so powerful, right? She just followed what is right for her, her whole life, her family at the time when she decided any kind of work to do. Two, knowing when to leave. Her mantra that you can have it all, you just can't have it all at the same time is really powerful. She looked at what worked for her during whatever time in her life that was busy with her family, whatever else she had going on. I think that's just really important. How are you defining success for you right now on your terms? Three, empathetic leadership. It's a strength to be compassionate and empathetic when leading. And frankly, we need more leaders like that in the world. Four, instead of people-pleasing Put that energy into a mission, something you're passionate about. And when you stay in your own integrity about it, the people-pleasing tends to go away. Five, stop being a great second to anyone in your career. We're all seconds at some point, but just recognize where you are and what your unique voice has to offer the world, because I know it's a lot. Next point ways to find your voice get present with yourself quiet time have a sense of humor and work on silencing your inner critic also finally that one in ten kids are sexually assaulted in the u.s and so much of it is through the internet and just to be really aware of what your kids are on it's so hard i get it try to monitor their online activities as much as possible. All right. Thank you again for listening. I so appreciate it. If you like the podcast, if you like this episode, I'd so appreciate you subscribing to Joyful Purpose Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And I would greatly appreciate a review and for you to share it with a friend. 
Thank you so much and have a great day.